we're going to be continuing a series that we started last week, looking at a character in the Old Testament called uh, Gideon. So we're going to be looking at Judges chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there now. I wonder what your greatest fear is. Even the most bold, courageous, confident people, if pressed and pushed, will have to admit that they're scared of something. Apparently, there are 530 specific phobias in the world. And in the UK, 10 million people have at least one of these phobias. Maybe you are one of them. Fear of heights. Fear of spiders. Fear of flying. Fear of the dark. Fear of needles. Fear of the dentist. That is the biggest one for me. The dentist is my phobia. I hadn't been to the dentist in seven years. Now, all the dentists out there, I know right now you're screaming at your computer or at your phone. But my theory has always been this, that I don't go to the doctor every six months to see if they can find something wrong with me. So I don't go to the dentist every six months so that I can hand them over money. But recently it got to the stage where I thought I'd better go for a checkup. And uh, everything was fairly fine. But in the, in, the, in the distance in one of the other rooms, I could hear that sound of the drill. That, to me, is the most terrifying sound in the world. And as I was leaving the dentist and as I paid the money for the checkup, the lovely receptionist said, so Craig, we'll book you back in in six months again. And I looked at her and I said, I don't think so. And she laughed and I didn't. And I said, why don't we leave it 12 months? So that's what it's going to be. But probably the week before it, I will cancel it and postpone it. We all have something we're afraid of. Those specific phobias. Maybe yours is flying. Maybe it's the dark. A lot of them come from childhood things. Maybe things we don't even remember. But we carry them into adulthood. So those are specific fears and phobias. But then there's a different kind of fear. There's a generalized fear. There's an anxiety that is much more constant and consistent within many people. It's very hard to put your finger on why it's there, but you wake up with this feeling in your stomach and it doesn't go away. You go through your day and you're overthinking everything. Whenever there's something that possibly could go wrong, you expect it to go wrong. You uh, uh, always are asking the question, what if? What if this happens? What if this happens? What if? And you're looking into the future and you're prophesying your own future negatively. And the reality is that most of the things that we're anxious and stressed about will never happen. And even if they do They'll not be anywhere near as bad as we expect them to be. And yet many of us have this inner anxiety and we feel it in our guts every day. That's how many people are feeling right now around our world. That's how maybe you're feeling today with everything that's going on in our community and in our world. Anxious and afraid apprehensive, not just for yourself, but for your loved ones. As I prayed earlier, maybe you have an elderly parent. Maybe they have an underlying health condition. Maybe you have a child with asthma. 
Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're self-employed and you're not sure how you're going to make it through the coming weeks. Maybe you're a parent with three children at home and you're not sure how you're going to make it through the coming weeks. Because right now, already, you're pulling your hair out. They're driving you mad. It is an unusual and unique and unprecedented situation we're living in. But it has brought to the surface fear and anxiety that we didn't know was there. Will there be enough food? Even though you have more frozen food at home than Iceland supermarket. Will there be enough toilet roll? Even though you're down to your last 327 rolls. Will you be able to teach your kids maths and English when you don't know an adjective? Uh, uh, see, I can't do it. An adjective from a verb from a noun. And you can barely speak English yourself, like me. How will you cope with being cooped up in the house for the next few months? No football, no gym, no Starbucks. How will you manage? If you're anything like me, you're already probably going a little bit stir-crazy with cabin fever. So fear and anxiety takes many forms. So what can we do? How can we get through this season? How can we navigate our way through these trying times? And the other question is this, where's God in the midst of this? Is God watching us? Does he know about this? And if he does, does he care? And if he cares, why is he not doing anything? That's what we're going to be thinking about today as we continue our series that we began last Sunday. Last Sunday, we started looking at Judges 6 with this, this story of this character called Gideon. And the sermon was called last week, When Fear Goes Viral. If you haven't watched it, please find it online. I think you'll find it really helpful. We talked about how at the time of the book of Judges, Israel were in the promised land. Moses was dead. He had brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. He had led them through the wilderness for 40 years. And then he had died and he had passed the baton on to Joshua. Joshua brought them into the promised land. He brought them into the place that God, hundreds of years before this, had declared would be theirs. And we read this in Judges 2 verse 7. The people served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had seen the great things that the Lord God had done for Israel. So Joshua's generation had experienced the Lord for themselves personally. They had had their own encounters with God. They had watched as he had parted the waters. They had seen him defeat their enemies. They had experienced his provision in the wilderness when he fed them day after day. They had followed the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They had a personal encounter with the living God, Yahweh, the only true God. But after Joshua dies, we come to the book of Judges. And here's what we read in Judges 2, beginning at verse 10. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. That was the false foreign gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to 
anger. And so what happens is there's a new generation. A generation who have never experienced or encountered God personally for themselves. Their parents knew God and they have grown up with an inherited faith, which is good. But at some stage, you need to make that faith personal. You see, secondhand clothes are fine. Secondhand cars are fine. But a secondhand faith won't get you through a storm or a trial like this. And these were people who had been relying on secondhand faith. But as soon as the generation who loved God pass on, they start to turn their hearts towards other gods. They become just like the culture around them. They start to blend in instead of being distinct as the people of God, a people who were called to be a light to the nations. They become just like everyone else. They say, God, we don't want you. And so God lifts his hand of blessing and protection off them. You know, sometimes the most scary thing God can do is give us what we want. Sometimes the most scary thing God can do is to say, if you want that, there you go. And God's people reject him. They say, we don't want you to be our God. We want to worship these other gods. And God says, okay, I'm not going to force myself on you. And so I'm going to lift my hand of blessing and protection off you as a nation. And all that they had been enjoying and taking for granted starts to fall apart. The countries around them, the countries that they wanted to be like, start raiding them. The Midianites and some of the other nations come in and start uh, every year at harvest time. They've been working hard. They've been planting. They've been uh, watering. And at harvest time, they come in and they devastate their crops. They kill all their livestock. And the people eventually cry out to God. Without God's blessing and protection on them, everything falls apart. And in our own situation at this time, I do not believe that this virus has been sent by God. The Bible makes it very clear in John 10 that the thief, that Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but that Jesus comes that we would have life. So this is not from God, but I do believe that God can use this to awaken us to the slumber that we have been in. This notion, this fallacy that we are in control of our lives. The reality is we are not in control of the next breath we take. At any moment we can be gone. That God is sovereign. God is in control. And through this, I believe that God will draw people back to himself. As we begin to realize the fragility of life and how much we need God's hand of blessing and protection over our lives, over our homes, over our families, and over our nation. And so the people cry out to God. And God intervenes. And as soon as God intervenes and things get good again, they fall away. And that's the cycle that we have throughout the book of Judges. The people sin, they rebel, things go awful, they cry out to God. God loves them so passionately, he intervenes. He sends a judge, a leader, not a a, a judge like we would have in a court today. A judge is a leader who points them back towards God. They repent, they return to God, he blesses them. And after a while, when things are good, they forget about God again and they drift. And that's the cycle we're in, in the book of Judges. And this is what we read in Judges 6 verse 1. Again, That word is key. Again, 
the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hand of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. This is a picture of total devastation and desperation. They're terrified. They're self-isolating in caves and under rocks. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. All they want to do is survive. Keep their heads down, close the doors, and try to make it through. Fear has gone viral, and everybody is infected. They're just trying to get through each day. These are the people of God. But they have forgotten who God is. And when God's people forget who he is, we also forget who we are that we are children of the king of kings. And we start to live like slaves. We start to live just like the world around us. You see, when we no longer have an appropriate fear of Almighty God, we will have an irrational fear of lesser things. Let me say that again. When, When we no longer have an appropriate fear of God our creator, we will start to have an irrational fear of lesser things. And so their courage is gone, their confidence is gone, their boldness is gone, and they're hiding for fear of their lives. And they hit rock bottom. All of us at some stage hit that rock bottom place. No matter how successful you are, no matter how good looking you are, no matter how good a job you have or how wealthy you are, life happens. And at some stage, the bottom drops out of our world and we hit rock bottom. What do you do at that point? This is what the Israelites did. Verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Eventually, they get to the place where they're so desperate that they know that there's only one place and one person to whom they can turn, and that is the Lord. And they cry out to him, and he responds. You know what that says to me? That God hears the prayers of his people. Now, that's a whole other message for another day. But what I simply want to say to you is this. Don't underestimate the power of prayer at a time like this. Prayer moves the heart and hand of God. Prayer moves heaven on behalf of the people of God. Let's be a people at this time who are caring practically, but who are praying passionately that God will intervene and that he will move this situation. So the people pray, and look at what God does, verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah, not Oprah, Ophrah, that belonged to Joash the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. So God shows up. The people pray to God. God shows up to a guy called Gideon. What's he doing? He's threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, last week I told you how ridiculous this is. A wine press was a hole in the ground where you crushed grapes to make wine. Wheat needed to be threshed on an elevated place. You threw it into the air. The wind came along. It blew the chaff away, and you were left with the good grain. But Gideon is doing it in a low place. He's doing it in a depressed place, in an isolated place. It's ridiculous. It's irrational. It's futile. It's useless. 
It's like trying to put up an umbrella in a hurricane. It's like trying to dig a hole with a sponge. It's, it's, it's like playing golf on a tennis court. It's pointless. It's ineffective. So why is Gideon doing this? The Bible tells us it's because of his fear of the Midianites, because fear will make you do irrational things. Fear will make you do silly things that are ineffective. Fear will make you do things that a few weeks ago you would have said, that is crazy. Fear will make you stock up on 400 toilet rolls when you don't need them. Fear will make you buy 36 bottles of hand sanitizer for the next two weeks. Fear will make you beat people up in supermarkets because they have toilet roll and you don't. Fear is crazy, but it goes viral because it infects a people and everybody gets caught up into fear and people stop thinking rationally. That's where Gideon is. He's doing the right thing, but he's doing it in the wrong place. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're doing the right thing. You're giving it your all. You're pouring your heart out. You're, you're working hard, but you're doing it in the wrong place. And maybe you just need to make a small adjustment. You see, all Gideon needed to do was elevate himself. Maybe fear has caused you to go to a low place and hide when God wants to elevate you. Maybe God has given you gifts and talents and abilities that the world needs to see that you can serve them with, but because of fear you're hiding. Remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25? When the guy hides a talent on the ground and the master comes back, he says, why did you hide your talent? He says, I was afraid. Fear causes us to hide the gold that God has put within us. The battle isn't so much out there. The battle is up here. Fear begins up here with what we feed our minds on. It begins with a thought and those thoughts become feelings and those feelings become actions and those actions become our lifestyle. And you cannot watch the news all day and feed your mind on social media all day and expect to live with courage at this time. We need to be a people who fill our minds with the word of God, with the promises of God, with what God says, with the character of God. We need to be steeped in what God says. Yes, of course, we're aware of what's going on around us, but what God says is more important. Just because fear comes to your door, you don't have to answer it. And you don't have to let it in. And you don't have to make a bed for it for the night. You can control what you consume. And I would encourage you to be a people, yes, who are aware of what's going on. But do not allow your mind to be filled with fear. Do not allow the the narrative of the newspapers to define your life more than the word of God defines your life. You see, fear is a bully. It's like the bully in the school playground. You can avoid it, but at some point, you've got to confront it and face up to it. And that's what God is going to call his people to do. And he's going to begin with a guy called Gideon. Gideon, who's hiding in a wine press. Look at verse 12 with me. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So Gideon is hiding in a wine press, and an angel shows up and says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This is hilarious. This is ridiculous. I'm sure Gideon looked around and went, Who are you talking to? 
I have no idea who you're talking to because I am not a mighty warrior. I am so far from a mighty warrior right now. You've got the wrong guy, God. Gideon is so aware of his own inadequacy, his own insecurity, his own fear, and his vulnerability. And at this stage, he's anything but a mighty warrior. He knows it and everyone else knows it. But here's the thing about God. God exists outside of time. You see, we live in this moment in the year 2020. And we don't know what's going to happen in an hour, never mind tomorrow. But God, the Bible says, knows the end from the beginning. God is eternal and he exists outside of time. So God knows what's going to happen in 12 weeks and 12 months and 40 years. And God looks at Gideon and he looks at his future and he speaks his future into his present and says, will you obey me and will you become what I see inside you? Will you be the man that I know that you can be by trusting me? And I want to say to you that at the minute, God knows what's going to happen with this. God sees the end of this. And God is speaking from the other side of this into your present right now. And he is speaking to you about your response. He's calling you to rise up. He's calling you, man and woman of God, children of God, to be the people he has called you to be. Because he knows the treasure and the gold and the gifts and the grace that he has put within you. That's why I can trust him. I don't have control, but I know the one who does. I don't know what the future holds, but I know the one who holds the future. And that's why I don't have to fear. So God calls Gideon a mighty warrior. He speaks into his present what he will one day be. That's really the nature of the prophetic, isn't it? That God speaks today what we can be in the future. God gives us promises God calls us to start embracing the future that he has for us. And maybe you have promises from God in your life. Maybe you've had prophetic words spoken over your life. And right now they seem so far away. I just want to encourage you today, hold on to what God has said. Even if everything around you looks different, don't go by what you see, but hold on to what God said and respond with obedience and faith. Gideon is not so sure, however. Look at verse 13. Pardon me, my Lord. He's very posh, isn't he? He's probably from the Malone Road. Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. Isn't that the question that many people are asking right now? If God is with us, why is this happening? Even kids are asking their parents this question. Mommy, Daddy, if God is real, why is he allowing this to happen? Does he care? And if he does, why is he not doing anything about it? It's the question we all ask when our hearts are broken. It's the question we all ask when we're going through trials and difficulties and troubles. It's the question I asked a number of years ago when I officiated the funeral of a little one-year-old boy. 
with his little coffin and watched as his mom and dad grieved. Why God? Why are you allowing this to happen? It's the question I asked just over a year ago when one of my dear friends, who's the same age as me, died of cancer, leaving his wonderful wife and his three beautiful little girls. Why God? I'm sure you have asked it. Maybe you're asking it at the minute. And the reality is this, that there is, the answer is complex. I don't want to give you trite answers. I don't want to give you pious platitudes. They won't satisfy. When your heart is broken, there is no answers that can satisfy. We live in a fallen, broken world where things are not as they should be. Our world is ravaged by sin and selfishness. But here's the reality of what's going to happen. God is going to put everything right. That things might look chaotic, but he is in control. And he is moving the earth and humanity towards a destiny where one day he says, I will make all things new. All your pain will be gone. All your tears will be dried. There will be no more sickness and no more suffering. That's the best answer I can give you right now, is that God has everything under control. In the meantime, we live in this reality of sin and sadness and sickness and suffering. And so Gideon asks, why God? The question we all ask. Look at God's response. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So Gideon looks to God for an answer, and God looks at Gideon and says, you are the answer. (laughs) I think God is saying the same to the church right now. He's saying the same to you, wherever you are. Instead of asking the questions, I want you to be the answer. I want you to be my hands and feet at this time. I want you to be my voice. I want you to express my heart to a world that is vulnerable and scared and lonely and isolated and broken. This is not a time for the church to hide. This is a time for the church to rise up and be the body of Christ, to express the love of Christ and to share the gospel of Christ with people who are terrified, who don't have the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I love that God says this to Gideon, Go in the strength you have. How much strength did Gideon have? Not a lot. But I love this about God. God takes our little and he makes it a lot. We see this throughout scripture. When we are willing to surrender and sacrifice and give God the little we have, however inadequate it seems, he is able to take our little and make it a lot. We see this throughout the Bible. He comes to Moses and he says, what's in your hand? And Moses said, it's just a staff. And God says, throw it on the ground. And when Moses surrenders that stick to God, that rod begins to become a supernatural instrument that parts waters, that brings water from rocks, and that wins battles. It was just a stick. But in God's hands, it was supernatural. The prophet Elisha comes to a woman who's devastated in poverty. She's about to lose her sons to pay off her debt. And the prophet through the the voice of God says this, what do you have in your house? And she said, I don't have much, I have just a little oil. And the prophet says, pour it out. And if she's obedient with pouring out the little she has, it just keeps on flowing. 
There's a day when Jesus is preaching and people are hungry. And a little boy comes up and he gives what he has. Just his packed lunch. A few fish and a few loaves. But when he is, gives what he has to Jesus, it becomes multiplied and feeds the multitude. When we give our little to God, the little strength we have, the little talents we have, the little courage we have, the little love we have. When we give it to God, he is able to take it and multiply it to reach a broken, hurting world. He always starts with what we have. But Gideon still needs some convincing. Verse 15, pardon me, again so polite, my Lord. Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I am the least in my family. Gideon feels so inferior and he feels so weak. You know, I haven't had to do a proper job interview for a wee while. I used to dread job interviews. You were always trying to prepare beforehand to figure out the sort of questions that they might ask you. And sometimes the questions were ridiculous. Like if you were a a can of soup, what flavor would you be and why? Or if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? Stupid questions like that. But then they would ask you questions like, so how do you deal with stress? I mean, what are you going to say? I hit people. You know, you say, I, I deal with it very well. What are your hobbies? Uh, sleeping and drinking. You, you don't tell the truth. What computer programs are you proficient at? Facebook. You know, one of the questions that you always seem to get asked in interviews is this. What would you say is your biggest weakness? <laughs> what a ridiculous question. I mean, really, does anybody ever answer that honestly? Well, where do you want me to start? You know, I'm really lazy, I'm dishonest, I'm unreliable, I don't get on with people, and uh, I don't get out of my bed before 11. I take sick days when I feel fine, and even though I don't smoke, I go out in the smoke breaks, and uh, just so I can text my friends. We don't say things like that. We give all our accomplishments, we give all our achievements. So when they say things like, what's your greatest weakness? You know what nearly everybody says? It's one of these two answers. Sometimes I'm too much of a perfectionist. Or the second thing is, sometimes I'm a workaholic and don't know when to stop. Like really, we want to put our best foot forward. We want to convince them that we're the best thing ever to happen to our company and business. Gideon here has been interviewed by God. He does the opposite. God hasn't even asked him what's your biggest weakness. He's just happy to tell him. He is suffering from such a major inferiority complex here. He's got a list of weaknesses longer than your arm. He says, I'm a nobody. I'm not wealthy. I'm not from a good family. I'm not gifted. I'm not strong. How can I do what you're asking me to do? He's telling God this as if God is surprised by all this. He's so focused on his own weakness that he misses God's strength. He's so focused on his own inadequacy that he misses God's total sufficiency. We all limit our lives at times. Nobody is more aware of our own failures and faults, our own inadequacies and insecurities than we are. And those things can cause us to shrink down and hide. Those things can cause us to not use the things that God has given us. We don't think we're good enough. We don't think we're as good as other people. We're so aware of our failures and faults. We think we're not smart enough. We're not clever enough. We're too old, too young, not confident enough, not good enough, not holy enough, not powerful enough, not gifted enough. That's exactly how Gideon thought. 
But what God looks for is availability. And he looks at not who we are, but who we can be when we surrender what we have to him. When we're willing to say, God, I don't have that much, but the little that I have, I give to you. And with your power and your strength, I will do what you're calling me to do. Today, you are not who you think you are. You're not even who your parents say you are. You're not who your school reports says you are. You're not who other people say you are. You are who God says you are. He takes the labels off you that other people have put on you and he puts his identity on you today. And he says you are a child of God. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You are loved, you are called, you are chosen, you are empowered and equipped for this cause and this time. You're a world changer. You're a carrier of hope. You're a light in the darkness. You're confident and secure in Christ. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. You're someone who will impact hundreds of lives. You're someone who will bring God's love to the least and the last and the lowest. You were created for purpose and destiny. You're significant. God has an amazing future for you. That is the truth right there. Not the lies of people, not the lies of the enemy, but what God says about you. So know it and live it. Let's finish for today. Verse 16. The Lord answered, I will be with you and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Do you know, the most common command in scripture is this, do not fear. People always say it's there 365 times. I don't know if that's true, and I'm not going to go and count because I've got a life. That's the greatest command in Scripture is do not fear. Not a suggestion, but a command. But you know what the greatest promise in Scripture is that God repeats time and time again? I will be with you. That's what he says time and time again to his people. It's the only promise he consistently gives. Not everything will work out fine. Not that you will never suffer. Not that you will only experience wealth and prosperity. Not that you will get a get out of pain free card, but he promises his presence. He says, I will be with you. And I want to say to you right now, wherever you are as you're watching this, Maybe you're in your home. Maybe you're listening to this in your car. I want to say this to you. God is with you and God is for you. Maybe you're afraid. God is with you and God is for you. Maybe you're scared about the future. God is with you. God is for you. Maybe you're frightened for your kids. Maybe you're worried about finances. God is with you. God is for you. And if God is for you, what does the Bible say? If God is for us, who can be against us? God says, I will be with you. You know, the Bette Midler song, From a Distance, it's a lovely song. But can I say to you, that is a load of rubbish. God today is not watching you from a distance. God is with you and God is for you. In Psalm 23, David said this, 
even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you're watching me from a distance? No, for you are with me. God is not watching us from a distance. God is not the light at the end of the tunnel. God is the light in the tunnel with us, bringing us through to the other side. God is with you. God is for you. And therefore, you might not be in control, but you know someone who is, and you can trust him. You might not know what the future holds, but I want to tell you, God knows the future. He holds the future, and you can trust him. Let me finish with a little story. It's one of my favorite stories. It's a story about a man who got on a flight, and he took a seat And sitting beside him was a little girl about nine years old, and she was on her own, and he couldn't figure out why. But every now and again, the stewardesses would come and check on her, and she was fine. And so the plane takes off, and they're traveling at 30,000 feet, and suddenly things begin to get very shaky. The plane begins to go up and down and rock from side to side, and everybody begins to panic. Some people scream. Luggage is flying out of the overhead compartments. Everybody's panicking, and the man looks at the little girl, and she is completely calm. She's sitting there sucking her thumb, reading a book. Things get worse. The plane drops hundreds of feet. People think they're going to crash. Everybody's screaming and panicking. They're terrified. And the man looks at the little girl and she's curled up on the seat, fast asleep. And nobody can understand why this little girl is so calm in the middle of the storm. And eventually, they make it through to the other side. And they land. And the man is getting his luggage from his overhead compartment. And he can't help himself. He stops and he looks at the little girl and he says, do you mind if I ask? While everybody was panicking, while everybody was screaming, you were so calm. When everybody was freaking out, you were fast asleep. How were you able to maintain your calmness and your peace through that horrible storm he went through? And the little girl looked up at him and she said, you see, my daddy's a pilot and he's flying this plane. And I knew that my daddy would get us through the other side. So I trusted in him, and that's why I didn't panic. And I want to say to you today that our Father is in control, and if you will put your trust in him, he will bring you through this to the other side. I'm going to invite the band to come back up and lead us in our final song. But as I do that, I want to give you an opportunity wherever you are to respond to this message. Maybe you go to church all the time. Maybe you haven't been in church in years and you find yourself flicking through Facebook or YouTube today and you've ended up watching this. I want to give you an opportunity today to put your trust in Jesus Christ. I want to give you an opportunity to surrender your life to God. He is the only one who can bring you through this. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to pray a very simple prayer. It's a prayer of saying sorry for your sins and inviting Jesus Christ to come into your life. And he promises if you will do this, he will come in and forgive you and give you a whole new life. Jesus died for you. He rose again. He's coming back and he wants you to be one of his children. He wants you to be his friend. He wants you to make him Lord and King of your life.
Would you pray this with me now? Where you are, if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, or if you have been a Christian and you've drifted and wandered and want to come back, just pray this short prayer with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died the death on the cross that I should have died, and he rose again. Today, I put my trust in him. I repent and turn away from my sin. Please forgive me. I turn to Christ. I choose to follow him from this day forward. I make him my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit, God. From this day, I am a child of God. Amen. If you have prayed that prayer, would you do something? Would you go onto our Facebook page? And would you drop us a private message? We would love to follow up with you. We would love to encourage you in the days ahead. If you have prayed that prayer, that is the most important decision. The angels in heaven are rejoicing right now. And we want to rejoice with you.